Volume the Third, Chapter Nine of Caleb Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams by William Godwin. Volume the Third, Chapter Nine. While I was thus endeavouring to occupy and provide for the intermediate period till the violence of the pursuit after me might be abated, a new source of danger opened upon me, of which I had no previous suspicion. Gines, the thief who had been expelled from Captain Raymond's gang, had fluctuated during the last years of his life between the two professions of a violator of the laws and a retainer to their administration. He had originally devoted himself to the first, and probably his initiation in the mysteries of thieving qualified him to be peculiarly expert in the profession of a thief-taker, a profession he had adopted, not from choice, but necessity. In this employment his reputation was great, though perhaps not equal to his merits, for it happens here, as in other departments of human society, that however the subalterns may furnish wisdom and skill, the principals exclusively possess the éclat. He was exercising this art in a very prosperous manner, when it happened, by some accident, that one or two of his achievements, previous to his having shaken off the dregs of unlicensed depredation, were in danger of becoming subjects of public attention. Having had repeated intimations of this, he thought it prudent to decamp, and it was during this period of his retreat that he entered into the blank gang. Such was the history of this man antecedently to his being placed in the situation in which I had first encountered him. At the time of that encounter he was a veteran of Captain Raymond's gang. For thieves being a short-lived race, the character of veteran costs the less time in acquiring. Upon his expulsion from this community he returned once more to his lawful profession, and by his old comrades was received with congratulation as a lost sheep. In the vulgar classes of society no length of time is sufficient to expiate a crime, but among the honourable fraternity of thief-takers it is a rule never to bring one of their own brethren to a reckoning, when it can with any decency be avoided. They are probably reluctant to fix an unnecessary stain upon the ermine of their profession. Another rule observed by those who have passed through the same gradation as Gines had done, and which was adopted by Gines himself, is always to reserve such as have been the accomplices of their depredations to the last, and on no account to assail them without great necessity or powerful temptation. For this reason, according to Gines's system of tactics, Captain Raymond and his confederates were, as he would have termed it, safe from his retaliation. But though Gines was, in this sense of the term, a man of strict honour, my case, unfortunately, did not fall within the laws of honour he acknowledged. Misfortune had overtaken me, and I was on all sides without protection or shelter. The persecution to which I was exposed was founded upon the supposition of my having committed felony to an immense amount, but in this Gines had had no participation. He was careless whether the supposition were true or false, and hated me as much as if my innocence had been established beyond the reach of suspicion. 
the blood-hunters who had taken me into custody at blank, related as usual among their fraternity a part of their adventure, and told of the reason which inclined them to suppose that the individual who had passed through their custody was the very Caleb Williams, for whose apprehension a reward had been offered of a hundred guineas. Gines, whose acuteness was eminent in the way of his profession, by comparing facts and dates, was induced to suspect in his own mind that Caleb Williams was the person he had hustled and wounded upon Blank Forest. Against that person he entertained the bitterest aversion. I had been the innocent occasion of his being expelled with disgrace from Captain Raymond's gang, and Gines, as I afterwards understood, was intimately persuaded that there was no comparison between the liberal and manly profession of a robber, from which I had driven him, and the sordid and mechanical occupation of a blood-hunter, to which he was obliged to return. He no sooner received the information I have mentioned than he vowed revenge. He determined to leave all other objects, and consecrate every faculty of his mind to the unkenneling me from my hiding-place. The offered reward, which his vanity made him consider as assuredly his own, appeared as the complete indemnification of his labour and expense. Thus I had to encounter the sagacity he possessed in the way of his profession, whetted and stimulated by a sentiment of vengeance, in a mind that knew no restraint from conscience or humanity. When I drew to myself a picture of my situation soon after having fixed on my present abode, I foolishly thought, as the unhappy are accustomed to do, that my calamity would admit of no aggravation. The aggravation which, unknown to me, at this time occurred, was the most fearful that any imagination could have devised. Nothing could have happened more critically hostile to my future peace than my fatal encounter with Gines upon Blank Forest. By this means, as it now appears, I had fastened upon myself a second enemy, of that singular and dreadful sort that is determined never to dismiss its animosity as long as life shall endure. While Falkland was the hungry lion whose roarings astonished and appalled me, Gines was a noxious insect, scarcely less formidable and tremendous, that hovered about my goings, and perpetually menaced me with the poison of his sting. The first step pursued by him in execution of his project was to set out for the seaport town where I had formerly been apprehended. From thence he traced me to the banks of the Severn, and from the banks of the Severn to London. It is scarcely necessary to observe that this is always practicable, provided the pursuer have motives strong enough to excite him to perseverance, unless the precautions of the fugitive be, in the highest degree, both judicious in the conception and fortunate in the execution. Gines, indeed, in the course of his pursuit, was often obliged to double his steps, and like the harrier, whenever he was at a fault, returned to the place where he had last perceived the scent of the animal, whose death he had decreed. He spared neither pains nor time in the gratification of the passion which choice had made his ruling one. Upon my arrival in town he for a moment lost all trace of me, London being a place in which, 
on account of the magnitude of its dimensions, it might well be supposed that an individual could remain hidden and unknown. But no difficulty could discourage this new adversary. He went from inn to inn, reasonably supposing that there was no private house to which I could immediately repair, till he found, by the description he gave, and the recollections he excited, that I had slept for one night in the borough of Southwark. But he could get no further information. The people of the inn had no knowledge what had become of me the next morning. This, however, did but render him more eager in the pursuit. The describing me was now more difficult, on account of the partial change of dress I had made the second day of my being in town. But Gines at length overcame the obstacle from that quarter. Having traced me to my second inn, he was here furnished with a more copious information. I had been a subject of speculation for the leisure hours of some of the persons belonging to this inn. An old woman, of a most curious and loquacious disposition, who lived opposite to it, and who that morning rose early to her washing, had espied me from her window, by the light of a large lamp which hung over the inn, as I issued from the gate. She had but a very imperfect view of me, but she thought there was something Jewish in my appearance. She was accustomed to hold a conference every morning with the landlady of the inn, some of the waiters and chambermaids occasionally assisting at it. In the course of the dialogue of this morning, she asked some questions about the Jew who had slept there the night before. No Jew had slept there. The curiosity of the landlady was excited in her turn. By the time of the morning it could be no other but me. It was very strange. They compared notes respecting my appearance and dress. No two things could be more dissimilar. The Jew-Christian, upon any dearth of subjects of intelligence, repeatedly furnished matter for their discourse. The information thus afforded to Gines appeared exceedingly material but the performance did not for some time keep pace with the promise. He could not enter every private house into which lodgers were ever admitted, in the same manner that he had treated the inns. He walked the streets, and examined with a curious and inquisitive eye the countenance of every Jew about my stature, but in vain. He repaired to Duke's place and the synagogues. It was not here that in reality he could calculate upon finding me, but he resorted to those means in despair, and as a last hope. He was more than once upon the point of giving up the pursuit, but he was recalled to it by an insatiable and restless appetite for revenge. It was during this perturbed and fluctuating state of his mind that he chanced to pay a visit to a brother of his, who was the head workman of a printing office. There was little intercourse between these two persons, their dispositions and habits of life being extremely dissimilar. The printer was industrious, sober, inclined to Methodism, and of a propensity to accumulation. He was extremely dissatisfied with the character and pursuits of his brother, and had made some ineffectual attempts to reclaim him. But, though they by no means agreed in their first habits of thinking, they sometimes saw each other. Gines loved to boast of as many of his achievements as he dared venture to mention, and his brother was one more hearer, in addition to the set of his usual associates. 
the printer was amused with the blunt sagacity of remark and novelty of incident that characterized Gines's conversation. He was secretly pleased, in spite of all his sober and church-going prejudices, that he was brother to a man of so much ingenuity and fortitude. After having listened for some time upon this occasion to the wonderful stories which Gines, in his rugged way, condescended to tell, the printer felt an ambition to entertain his brother in his turn. He began to retail some of my stories of Cartouche and Guzman d'Alfarche. The attention of Gines was excited. His first emotion was wonder. His second was envy and aversion. Where did the printer get these stories? This question was answered. I will tell you what, said the printer. We none of us know what to make of the writer of these articles. He writes poetry and morality and history. I am a printer and corrector of the press, and may pretend without vanity to be a tolerably good judge of these matters. He writes them all to my mind extremely fine, and yet he is no more than a Jew. To my honest printer this seemed as strange as if they had been written by a Cherokee chieftain at the falls of the Mississippi. A Jew? How do you know? Did you ever see him? No, the matter is always brought to us by a woman. But my master hates mysteries. He likes to see his authors himself. So he plagues and plagues the old woman, but he can never get anything out of her, except that one day she happened to drop that the young gentleman was a Jew. A Jew! A young gentleman! A person who did everything by proxy, and made a secret of all his motions. Here was abundant matter for the speculations and suspicions of Gines. He was confirmed in them, without adverting to the process of his own mind, by the subject of my locubrations, men who died by the hand of the executioner. He said little more to his brother except asking, as if casually, what sort of an old woman this was, of what age she might be, and whether she often brought him materials of this kind, and soon after took occasion to leave him. It was with vast pleasure that Gines had listened to this unhoped-for information. Having collected from his brother sufficient hints relative to the person and appearance of Mrs. Marnay, and understanding that he expected to receive something from me the next day, Gines took his stand in the street early, that he might not risk miscarriage by negligence. He waited several hours, but not without success. Mrs. Marnay came. He watched her into the house, and after about twenty minutes' delay, saw her return. He dogged her from street to street, observed her finally enter the door of a private house, and congratulated himself upon having at length arrived at the consummation of his labours. The house she entered was not her own habitation. By a sort of miraculous accident she had observed Gines following her in the street, as she went home she saw a woman who had fallen down in a fainting-fit. Moved by the compassion that was ever alive in her, she approached her, in order to render her assistance. Presently a crowd collected round them. Mrs. Marney, having done what she was able, once more proceeded homewards. Observing the crowd round her, the idea of pickpockets occurred to her mind, 
she put her hands to her sides, and at the same time looked round upon the populace. She had left the circle somewhat abruptly, and Gines, who had been obliged to come nearer, lest he should lose her in the confusion, was at that moment standing exactly opposite to her. His visage was of the most extraordinary kind. Habit had written the characters of malignant cunning and dauntless effrontery in every line of his face, and Mrs. Marney, who was neither philosopher nor physiognomist, was nevertheless struck. This good woman, like most persons of her notable character, had a peculiar way of going home, not through the open streets, but by narrow lanes and alleys, with intricate insertions and sudden turnings. In one of these, by some accident, she once again caught a glance of her pursuer. This circumstance, together with the singularity of his appearance, awakened her conjectures. Could he be following her? It was the middle of the day, and she could have no fears for herself. But could this circumstance have any reference to me? She recollected the precautions and secrecy I practised, and had no doubt that I had reasons for what I did. She recollected that she had always been upon her guard respecting me, but had she been sufficiently so? She thought that, if she should be the means of any mischief to me, she should be miserable for ever. She determined, therefore, by way of precaution in case of the worst, to call at a friend's house, and send me word of what had occurred. Having instructed her friend, she went out immediately upon a visit to a person in the exactly opposite direction, and desired her friend to proceed upon the errand to me five minutes after she left the house. By this prudence she completely extricated me from the present danger. Meantime the intelligence that was brought me by no means ascertained the greatness of the peril. For anything I could discover in it, the circumstance might be perfectly innocent, and the fear solely proceed from the overcaution and kindness of this benevolent and excellent woman. Yet such was the misery of my situation, I had no choice. For this menace, or no menace, I was obliged to desert my habitation at a minute's warning, taking with me nothing but what I could carry in my hand. To see my generous benefactress no more, to quit my little arrangements and provision, and to seek once again in some forlorn retreat new projects, and if of that I could have any rational hope, a new friend. I descended into the street with a heavy, not an irresolute heart. It was broad day. I said, persons are at this moment supposed to be roaming the street in search of me. I must not trust to the chance of their pursuing one direction, and I another. I traversed half a dozen streets, and then dropped into an obscure house of entertainment, for persons of small expense. In this house I took some refreshment, passed several hours of active but melancholy thinking, and at last procured a bed. As soon, however, as it was dark, I went out, for this was indispensable, to purchase the materials of a new disguise. Having adjusted it as well as I could during the night, I left this asylum with the same precautions that I had employed in former instances. End of chapter 9 of Volume the Third.